This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here we are with my cloudy co-host, Jon. Hello, Jon. And this cloudy co-host has a statistics-filled co-host today. Indeed, full of st- statistics. I was going to say sex lies in statistics, but uh, possibly not. Can't talk about that <laughs> Indeed, but what we can talk about is uh, we had a, a comment on one of our previous episodes on YouTube uh, from Max6711, which was, this might be a stupid quest option around funding, but here I go anyway. Could someone like the Linux Foundation set up an open funding criteria that is linked to smart contracts, automatically distribute the funds at regular interval basis on which open source projects meet the various criteria? It would be open, visible, and publicly auditable. Discuss. Winking smiley face. We like getting so, from our audience. We do, we do. Uh, and I think like this is this is a perfect case where Jan's favorite technology, blockchain and smart contracts, he loves it, he loves it, he loves it, um, could definitely be used. I think the challenge with this is, I think we, we may have touched with this on the episode itself, but the I think the technology does exist. You're right, uh, Max. The technology does exist to be able to um, actually set this kind of thing up. The challenges, however, I think are still twofold. One is uh, the funding has to come from somewhere, and how do you how do you convince not just the the big behemoth type organisations um, that that they need to start chipping in because it really is just chipping in the kind of funding that they've provided to these kinds of projects so far is like not even pennies in terms of their the overall um, sort of investment they could make. So yeah, how do you convince those behemoths? But also, how do you convince maybe more run of the mill enterprise organisations to start um, you know contributing? How do you convince potentially governments, you know, countries mm-hmm. to start contributing? Like we, I can't remember whether we touched on it on a on a, another episode, but the you know the White House uh, literally after the Log for J um, challenges uh, had a uh, a session where they were talking about how certain you know about how, why open source needs to be. You know, part of the uh, the conversation when they're talking about software security and, uh, and and those kinds of things, and we talked about software software supply chain and things like that before. But you know, the the funding is one critical piece. Like, how do you get enough funding from enough widespread organisations to like start making this worthwhile? And then the the tail end of the the question is really how do you decide on that set of various criteria? I mean, the Linux Foundation, yes, I do think they're a very impartial organization. They've done a great job in almost anything um, that that they've uh, put their minds to so far. But, you know, wrangling something of this order of magnitude, I don't know. Like, it's a, it's a very big ask to, to get some kind of consensus on like you need the people donating to buy into what you're doing 
And if you see things like the uh, like the CNCF, it it didn't start off with huge kind of um, donations from large scale enterprises. It started off as a groundswell movement, and that's what the Linux Foundation does really well. Whereas this this potentially could need things to be the opposite way around. Like you'd need the funding, and you'd need the funding parties to agree on the criteria that we're using to set this. So I think that, as you say, like the tech exists, but the the other two, the other two things that bookend this, I think are probably the more complicated pieces of the puzzle. Uh, but thank you for the question. Well, feedback. Um, not much to add <laughs> that you kind of covered it from both angles. Uh, this is, of course, in relation to our solo maintainer projects at risk episode we did a couple of uh, weeks ago, which might have been interesting to mention at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, technology is one way, one thing, but it's the process around it that's going to be much more harder to figure out, I guess. And mm. Do we then at that point need blockchain? I mean, for me, I don't like blockchain because it's usually being used for something that you don't really need it for. Since if it was be Linux Foundation as a foundation, they already need to open their books up quite op openly and liberally already, I think. So the, the, the auditability shouldn't really be a big problem. Uh, mm -hmm. I would, on the other hand, see it interesting to see a open source thing using technology which is a bit high-end and new and seeing if it works and kind of spearheading some new technology ways of doing things from that point yeah. of view i'd be behind it to be honest because uh, it's it would be one of the less bad applications of, uh, <laughs> of <blog. laughs> yeah, i'm not gonna say i'm sorry <laughs> indeed indeed well you know it's it is an interesting thought and uh, again thank you for the comment if other people have th further thoughts and comments um you know we we always uh, we always certainly uh, read them and uh, you know we try and respond to those that we can so thank you max yep and with that let's go into the nugget of gold that dave dug up earlier today which is on the Indeed. internet of course I went, I went mining the internet to see what I could find, and uh, I came up with, uh, and we can, we can, maybe we could, we we debate this at the end of uh, of the uh, the article or at the end of kind of reviewing and and talking about this. But the the article is called "19 Cloud Computing Statistics That Will Keep You Awake at Night." So when we get to the end of this, let's actually ask ourselves whether this would actually keep us up at, end, at night. But yeah, it's it's split up into a few different sections. Um, the first one is around cloud adoption, which is is always kind of interesting because it's the it's the area that kind of is is pretty much always moving up and to the right. Like more people are adopting cloud. Uh, surprise, surprise, um, you know, those kinds of things. But this is looking at it from a few different angles. Yeah, and I mean, we've read through the article beforehand, of course, and uh, I do have some reservations here. Obviously, uh, the whole thing, uh, lies, lies and statistics, is always a, a valid concern. <laughs> But on the other hand, the, the article isn't trying to be all rosy or all negative. So mm -hmm. uh, they do strike a bit of a balance and they do all uh, point back to the original uh, reviews, the original surveys that they are referencing here. So I guess it's an 
they're on the up and up, so that's fine. And that's why we, I thought we was good to give our ideas around it a little bit. Now, the first one is one I do want to talk about because I don't believe this mm-hmm. one. If it, was, if it had said that 98% of enterprises have a multi-cloud strategy planned, wish, roadmap, uh, I'd be behind this. In mm. place, however, I still see multi-cloud very far away. Now, this, of course, enters the whole SaaS uh, discussion again, because the moment mm. if you're using SaaS as an example of multi-cloud, then, yeah, if you're using Salesforce and Dropbox and Google, Google Drives and things like that, you will be on different clouds. I don't see that as an enterprise having a multi-cloud strategy. That's having a SaaS strategy. So I'm going to disregard mm. all of that. On that point, I think more companies today have a hybrid cloud strategy than a multi-cloud strategy. And even the hybrid cloud strategy enterprises are in the low 30%, I would say, ish. Mm. Yeah, I I think the, the as always, lies down lies in statistics. Uh, they, you can, uh, just because someone has a strategy doesn't mean they've, like, it's fully implemented. So uh, the way that I read it, and, you know, again, the de- the devil's in the detail. Mm. We're not going to go around and, and click through 19 click-throughs to go and read the source material and go through that. Uh, this isn't that kind of podcast. No, that'll be work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but just going off of, of my experience, like I do think that many organizations are looking at and thinking about multi-cloud. multi-cloud. That doesn't, hybrid cloud. Yeah. Multi-cloud. No, I, I'm I'm definitely talking to more and more organisations that are that are talking about multi-cloud, and like it's not that they it's not they've implemented it by any means. Like as you say, relatively few organisations are on on that end of the journey. But more and more organisations I talk to are at least want to understand what multi-cloud could do it mm-hmm. for them. You know, when it makes sense to think about multi-cloud. Oh. That's a question I would have. What would be their drivers go to multi-cloud? Because there are a couple of things I can think of, but why would a company... Let's drag it out of the, the article here. Why would yeah. multi-cloud make sense? So the conversations that I've had with organizations where they're looking at multi-cloud are along the lines of there, there are certain cloud providers that just do certain things better. And so doing best of breed, even if it's split across two different cloud providers or who knows, three different cloud providers, um, is actually more beneficial than not doing best of breed and sticking with a single mm-hmm. cloud provider. You know, Kind of a big thing, right? Because at the moment you go multi-cloud, you make everything 10 times more complicated. Because yeah. don't mistake, these clouds, their sole intention is for you not to do this. They want to have you, they want to make it sticky and make sure that all the stuff you do is going to land on their cloud. Uh, neither Amazon, Google, nor Azure have any advantage of you going multi-cloud. So they're going to try to hamper you in any which way possible. And this is not mm-hmm. malice, this is not bad intentions, this is just good business. Business, yeah. So when you go there, it's going to be a lot of effort, extra effort, a lot of security hassles as well. I would think there would need to be a very uh, very big, unique selling thing on that other cloud to make all this worthwhile. And in my experience, 
I would rather than expect people to move lock, stock and barrel to the other cloud. Because if they have that and it's that important that it can actually disrupt the entire thing, yes, moving is the best option. And during the move, you'll be multi-cloud. True. So at that point, <laughs> it would be a multi-cloud strategy. But I mean, it's not what they're talking about here, right? No. The, the other one that I do see people doing, which is... Um, I, I'm I'm less. I think I'm less convinced by, but I I do acknowledge that for some people it does make sense. Is the 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 whole kind is exactly the point that you're mentioning the vendor lock-in, and so they're looking at standing up different services in different cloud providers, or indeed, if they themselves are a service provider, they're standing up different regions in different cloud providers. Yeah. either because they're serving different markets. So as an example, um, uh, you know, Azure is uh, a particularly popular cloud in EMEA. Mm -hmm. um, in India, AWS is by far um, the most prevalent cloud and GCP and, uh, and Azure are not in place. So if you're a... Um, yeah, a customer that has services that you deliver in those two geos, it is not unlikely that you would have some of your services in GCP and some of your, oh, sorry, some of your services in Azure and some of your services in AWS for serving those different markets. That would be specifically then because there's no data center available from that same cloud provider in that region. Not necessarily. That's getting like, less and less. That happens less and less. No, right? it's you're right. You're right. It's not necessarily about the that the other providers don't have the data centers. It's just that more there are more customers using that particular cloud provider. So Why would as I care as, as a service provider, the reason that you care about that is because you care how quickly and how easy it is for customers to spend money with you. And the majority of organizations that are offering services are looking for the easiest route to, to money. And okay. the easiest that's route when is for you to spend... Uh, on the marketplace or something like that. Yeah, okay, exactly. Cool. Then it's just the, the distribution channel of that cloud that they're yeah. using. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but then you're talking about kind of resellers of software or sellers of software or solutions. Yep. Uh, that's not really organizations going multi-cloud. That's more of a having multiple channels. And to be honest, it should be on every cloud regardless then. But yeah, priorities but might itself... shift a little bit. I don't see that as a vendor lock-in though, because you started this one with uh, avoiding vendor lock-in. This is no, more sorry. distribution channels. The, yeah, so the, the vendor lock-in was more around the, the other piece was... Um, people are seeing cloud providers have issues, have challenges, have outages. And this is like the, the third kind of reason that I see people looking at multi-cloud is trying to A, reduce vendor lock-in mm -hmm. to a certain amount and have, again, like certain services stood up in certain cloud providers, which is the, the piece that I touched on earlier but also to reduce their reliance on individual cloud providers okay. um, and split their, split their services, split, split their distribution, split their load across cloud providers so that even if you know, AWS has a significant mm -hmm. outage, 
all of their services don't go down. All of their customer yeah. do, customer base doesn't go down. You're crossing the streams here, baby. Yeah, this is not but, lock-in. This is Ross recovery. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of both because if you've got if you've One got the, the ability, yeah. yeah. Well, if you've got the ability to run your services across multiple cloud providers, it isolates you or releases you somewhat from vendor lock-in in some cases. Now, to your point right at the very beginning of this. This makes everything far more complicated. Like there is, there is, it's far easier if you stand up an entire stack and ecosystem within a single cloud provider, using their all of their uh, all of their tech stack, all of their fabulous mm -hmm. uh, technology, and don't stray outside that. As soon as you start to think, oh, you know, I I stood this up on. Um, uh, with a Amazon S3 backend, now I want to use uh, you know GCS, you know, Google Cloud Storage backend for for something that I spin up on on GCP. Well, they don't behave exactly the same. They don't they don't uh, they don't operate exactly the same. Yes, they are broadly speaking the same technologies, but they're not identical. And so there's there's always a price to be paid. Like this, none of this comes for free. Yeah, 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 I mean, I'm going to, I mean, last episode, we promised we're going to be not on the same side. So more controversial. controversial. More aggressive, more, uh, you're, you're wrong, I'm telling you, you're wrong, you're totally wrong. Um, going first on the vendor lock-in, I always thought that was a bit of a ridiculous one, to be honest. Because, I mean, looking at the data centers, uh, does do you really going to buy one-third of your hardware from Dell, one-third of your hardware from IBM, one-third of your hardware from Fujitsu or something like that to have no vendor lock-in? Sure, on paper, that's true. But you get those no, nice bulk discounts, and those usually trump all vendor lock-in on infrastructure basis. Mm. And cloud is basically infrastructure. So, yeah, on the one hand, there is vendor lock-in, but if you go to a single cloud, you'll get bigger discounts, and typically that outweighs the vendor lock-in stuff, to be honest. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I've I've seen both. Yeah. I've seen both work. I've seen both be successful. It's, it's yeah, whatever. There's also yeah. a recovery one, however, is an interesting one. Because mm. I'm, I'm starting to see something new. Well, see, I'm, I'm going to predict something new here. Oh, here we go. Because the whole idea of going multi-cloud for disaster recovery is not all your eggs in one basket, but because we've seen that there are, there's been domino effects of clouds going down across the world because data center A has a problem, stuff gets offloaded to other data centers. Because, of course, you can build your disaster recovery within one cloud provider by having mm -hmm. part of your stuff in Amsterdam, Azure, and have the kind of a duplicate of your environment in their data center in Germany or Ireland or whatever. And if this one goes down, your stuff all rolls over to the other site. And we've seen that if a data center goes down, the other data centers in the, in the, in the region get overloaded, fall over, get overloaded, fall over, and the whole world, the whole, the whole entire cloud goes down. And basically you go, well, let's go to Amazon or Google then as our secondary location. That way, if this cloud goes down, we'll have a better chance to survive. Works well up until the moment everybody does this. Because <laughs> then, I mean, if, Amazon, if, if Azure goes down and all fallback goes to, I'm just say Amazon, Amazon is going to go down. <laughs> so instead of having a domino effect, you have a mega domino effect, a macro domino effect, call it what you want. But this is a temporary solution, not a final one. And at the end of the day, while I think that today it would make sense 
to have a multi-cloud strategy for disaster recovery if you need it because it is going to be expensive disaster recovery always is expensive no way around that if you need this make mm-hmm. good ry calculations to make sure you actually can afford it and it's always mm-hmm. a weighing of uh, what's going to cost me if i go down and what does the disaster recovery cost me because again disaster recovery very expensive and you hope you'll never need it yeah very, very hard sell um but on the long term going multi-cloud isn't going to solve it anymore because mm-hmm. more goes to cloud and it'll start overwhelming it also. <laughs> do I do I do I believe that? Do it's I inevitable. believe? Come on. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's definitely possible. I mean, it's already happening. Sure. I mean, not the crashing, but if I look at my, I'm looking in, in the Benelux, mm. and all the customers that I talk about that are looking at multi-cloud for high availability or disaster recovery, they all look at Azure Amsterdam and Google Belgium mm-hmm. because that's within the Benelux. It's nicely geopolitically enclosed. It's nice. It's mm-hmm. good. GDPR, all fine. Everybody goes to do those two data centers. Mm-hmm. If this goes on, I guarantee you'll get a domino effect across clouds. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, <laughs> like then what happens? Does everybody go back on prem? Just like. Um, no, I think the end result there is it won't matter. Just stay within a single cloud because you will still have a potential domino effect, but mm. with added complexity due to the multi-cloud. So while we're not solving the problem, we're adding complexity. Okay, remove the complexity, stay in the same cloud and run the same risk. And just assume, accept that you will have a downtime of 0.001% on a yearly basis, mm. something like that. I mean, that's the whole nines uh, calculation. Yeah. And basically, the whole disaster recovery thing, it's an expectation management thing, right? Yeah. I mean, some uh, services, applications uh, cost a lot of money because they have a couple of more nines behind the decimal point. And if, again, return on investment, if that's important for you, make it so. Other way to go around it is identification. Some products or services are very expensive because they offer unlimited identification. Yeah, and it's it's a risk uh, calculation. It's it's never certain things will crash, things will break. Even if you have a fallback on three different clouds, including Alibaba and Tencent, it's a lot of glue code, a lot of scripting, a lot of things that have to go just right to have that service uptime guarantee. You can't guarantee 100%, so you still need that little bit of identification. You still need that. We have an SLA of 99 point X number of nines. Mm. And disaster recovery, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if, just not talking about it, I'm actually seeing less companies going for disaster recovery and more people going for high availability because that's reasonably easy to do when a lot of software has mm. it kind of built in. So why the heck not? And disaster recovery is much getting more and more kind of an edge thing, but that could be a observer bias because mm. uh, not observer bias, but before only the huge companies, big things, big money went that far because they had the money to do it in the first place. Nowadays with the cloud, we have a lot of smaller entities on there that simply don't have the big pockets to pay for this. So they don't see it as important and they don't have the ROI to, to, to cover it basically. Mm. So maybe that's why the old guys that still wanted it still wanted today. And the new uh, adopters of the cloud 3.0 era gets written of now today. Well, let's make mm-hmm. it a 4.0. No. Uh, <laughs> those are less inclined to go there because yeah, they kind of have the different mindset from the yeah the old mainframe idea should never break. 
do the new if it breaks break it quickly and make a new one and move on yeah that's that's what i was going to say is the the shift that i've certainly seen which is the whole like uh it doesn't it does it, the disaster recovery has become not a we'll keep a warm environment you know spun up and ready to take the load when we need it it's become a infrastructure as code we can deploy what we need in you know minutes if we need it and so you know our, our disaster recovery has been has become well the the underlying storage layer is is replicated yeah. uh, anyway and instead of having you know large data centers of warm or cold hardware somewhere we just assume that the capacity is there when we need it and we spin it up now obviously the, and that's a domino way that happened then we're back then we're back <laughs> to the potential domino but yeah like i think that's uh, that's definitely uh, been uh, been something that's become more and more prevalent as more and more organizations have stepped into that world yeah 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 I just want to remind us and the audience that this is number one of the 19 statistics to keep uh, us awake and we've yeah, been talking for like not, 25 minutes. <laughs> they're not all this interesting. I think we can, I reckon we can, uh, we can get to the end of the cloud adoption statistics at least uh, because I, I don't find um, uh, numbers well, we two about and this three. One, actually. Uh, this is yeah. the vendor lock-in, right? So apparently they see that people will avoid vendor lock-in more and more. Eh, I kind of mm -hmm. gave my idea behind that. But number four is the one that I really want to talk about, which is cloud ranks number one as preferred security technology deployment method. And this, this to me is fascinating because for, for those of you that have been in the industry for, you know, long enough, I'm sure you remember the early stages of cloud. And I'm sure you remember talking to organizations or even bigger organizations who basically said, oh, yes, we, we will never move to cloud. Cloud is insecure. Cloud is operated by someone else. We, we trust in, in the, the things that we do ourselves and, uh, uh, and that side of things. And, you know, here we are X number of years later. And sure enough, now cloud is the preferred security technology deployment method. <laughs> I just find it funny. Uh, it's a bit nuanced, right? Because uh, the first part is about the security of the infrastructure itself. While mm. this point is actually saying that by outsourcing resource-intensive processes like managing in-house IT infrastructure, companies can be free up their limited personal resources to focus on all the priorities, blah, 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 blah. So this is about outsourcing of your responsibilities. I'm talking, it yeah. should be in focus, I guess. Um, Might be an idea. So, and this is mainly the MSSP idea, right? Of having managed security service providers. And mm -hmm. typically those are getting more and more cloud-based because they need to be geographically distributed because that stuff preferably yeah. runs kind of close to the endpoints. Yep. Kind of and they're complicated and complex. No, they can be. They don't have to be. Kind of depends on how you set it up. Uh, um, I mm. would say some MS MSSPs are kind of guilty of making it more complicated than they have to, but they kind of forced to due to all kind of restrictions with the compl uh, compliance and things like that. So yeah, it's again no malice, mal malevolence or anything like that in mm -hmm. in intended here. It's just how the world works basically. But uh, this is more a thing about sure put your security XDR seam, whatever you want to call it, in a cloud. It's easy, it's fast, it's scalable, it's okay-ish. But the main reason I see people do this or companies do this today is because more companies, smaller companies need to have something in place. 
because mm. everybody's a target these days. It's not just because you're a small company that the, the hackers ain't gonna look at you because it's become a mass market. And these smaller companies don't have a cert team, they don't have a SOC team, they don't have this in place, and they don't even want to train threat hunters because basically, I'm a retail store. I don't know anything about security stuff, and I shouldn't have to, so I'm just going to outsource this. And whether or not it then outsources to, secure, to a cloud thing or not, well, does that really make a difference from that point of view? I mean, it shouldn't do. Like, you should... You should deploy the services or consume the services wherever it makes the most sense for you. And I, I think this is, uh, I just think it's hilarious that it wasn't that long ago that a lot of organizations were saying, oh yes, well, we, you know, we, we don't mind, you know, just throwing public data up on cloud, but, uh, you know, security data, oh, definitely not. No, that, that needs to stay. That needs to stay on-prem, that needs to stay within our boundaries. And... Maybe this is because in the last six months or something, we've seen that the big cloud providers have been pushing their own cloud security things on top of it. I mean, Azure has Sentinel. I know I, I know more about Azure about the rest. Look at my CV, mm. you know, you understand why. Uh, I'm sure that Google and uh, Amazon are also trying to cash in because uh, it's not the market hype. I mean, it's a, it's a serious thing, security, but it's definitely got a lot of attention now. So uh, obviously they'll try to make this as a bundled package deal. You go to our cloud, you get a X amount of VM capacity, whatever, and we'll throw on top of our security layer on top of it. And that way it would be easy in some statistics to say that, oh, 90% of security of infrastructure is running in the cloud now because it kind of came with it. Maybe that... Uh, I. I don't think it is. I don't think. I mean, there may be an element of that. I don't think it's purely that though. Like I've, I've still kept you know some tabs on you know the the infosec and cybersecurity world, despite the fact that my focus has shifted over the last few years. Um, and the the kind of tidal wave that I saw happening when I was more embedded in that world has just continued to grow, which is in in my view is more and more providers have shifted to a SaaS model for their services and therefore more people are consuming those SaaS services and I I also go back on the the point I mentioned about I think that these services that are being provided are also becoming more and more complicated which is why it's making more and more sense to run them as SaaS services and also when you're talking about the the infosec industry you're talking about an industry that is chronically short of people like it this is this is the number one challenge for for infosec globally is that there just are not enough people in that industry uh, i don't know what the number is at the moment but it's previously been you know 20% 30% sort of uh, open open headcount open roles across organizations you know globally so the the fact if if you can to your point you know outsource effectively you know some of the um some of the the load there by consuming some of these services and having some of this done by a, a third party provider then it's not just a it's not just a nice to have i think it's for some organizations it's become a necessity because they cannot find the people to run the whole function themselves. Yeah, I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's just that the service doesn't need to run in the cloud. 
I mean, I could be a big telco, a big data center, and run a managed security service from my data center. This doesn't sure. need to be in the cloud. However, I do think I agree that cloud is a better place to do this because the moment you're doing things as a service, flexibility, scalability become very important. And if you do it in your own data center, well, you kind of have to predict, I'm going to buy 10,000 servers today because I think I'll need them in the next 12 months. <laughs> in the end, if you do need them all, it's going to be a cheaper option by far. But if you mm. don't need them all... <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an expensive you, mistake. It's CapEx versus OPEX. And there, that's the one redeeming feature for cloud in my eyes. That's the OPEX part of it. If you have mm. a bursty service where you need to be quick, because that's the other thing, right? If you didn't buy those 12,000 servers and now you need 50 servers more, especially in these days of the pandemic, it's going to take you a couple of months to buy some servers. Servers are in high yeah. demand and then for low supply these days. I've got a lot of customers at the moment that are actually doing exactly this, deploying stuff in the cloud because they just can't get the hardware. Mm. And the providers, mm. the MSSPs, well, if they're running on the, in the cloud, they can just add on a couple of new VMs. And at this moment in time, I have not really seen any cloud data center run out of capacity. That's, of course, because these cloud providers are not buying HP, Dell, Supermicro, whatever hardware anymore. They pretty much built that stuff in the house now. The, sur the, the, the CPU shortage is primarily hitting desktop CPUs and not mm. really server CPUs because those are always a couple of generations behind and, well, in decent supply, it would seem. Yeah, but, uh, yeah from that well, point also of view, the cloud is a low barrier of entry, basically. Yeah, and also the, the cloud providers are the number one customers for... Um, You're not saying for, they're getting preferential treatment, are you? Come on, I, come I on. Believe that, I believe that could be the case. <laughs> and uh, I think on that note, we're running a little long. So uh, I think unless there's anything else from you, Jan. Uh, no, with that, that is the end of the first part, I guess, of the 19 <laughs> facts that will keep us awake at night. Um, uh, as you kind of foreshadowed, uh, does this first part keep you awake? This first part does not keep me awake, but no. maybe, maybe the keeping awake comes later. Yeah. For this first part, it actually helps me go to slumberland a little bit, I must say, because there's nothing fairly new in there, but I do think we had a good discussion about it. Mm. But with that, that's all the time you have for today. You can support this podcast. You can become a patron. Contributions help us do this stuff every week again and again. Thank you, Patreons. We are on YouTube. Like, subscribe, not notification bells, all the YouTube stuff Dave loves, and leave comments. If you leave a comment, we guarantee if you give us a command to discuss something, we will discuss it. No problem there. <laughs> Apart from that, you can also go to www.roaringalpha.org. There's links there to the Patreon page, the YouTube page, and all the other stuff that we do here. You can find us on Twitter using the @roaringelephant tag, and you can send plain old May email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is, I have no inspiration, but I'm happy I'm not on cloud, John. <laughs> and my name is Sleeping Soundly Dave. I didn't want to go there. We look forward to talk to you again next week and with a bit of luck, Dave will be awake again. Maybe. See you then. <laughs> Goodbye.